0: Let's look to the scriptures, and I want to begin this morning by saying the end is near. And I mean that in a lot of ways. Number one, the end of 2020 is near. Thank you, Jesus. I, I hope we hope, don't we, that the end of the pandemic is near. We hope and we believe that the end of uh, non-traditional instruction is near. I know every parent in here is like, please let that be over. And this morning, across the nation, in pulpits, across America, there are going to be a lot of year-end messages, even online. There's going to be a lot of people talking about reflecting back on 2020, and a lot of them are going to ask this question. They're going to ask, what did we learn this year? What did this year teach us? And that's a good question, and there's nothing wrong with the question. And in fact, that would be a good question for you to ask, and maybe your quiet time with the Lord this year as you reflect on this year, this week, as we prepare for the new year. But as Andrew Wilson has reminded us, um, it becomes that question: what, what did the Lord teach us this year? Or what did we learn this year? It becomes something of a Rorschach test. You know the Rorschach test with the ink blots, where you hold it up and you say, "What do you see?" And it's not—it doesn't really tell you anything about the ink blots. It tells you about the person. And so when we ask the question, what, "What did we learn this year?" really, it's kind of subjective. It really is just kind of telling us more about ourselves than it is the year. or or more about ourselves than it is God or what he was actually trying to do this year, what he was doing. And that becomes all the more complicated because there's lots of ideas out there about what 2020 was about. There's a lot of voices. There are a lot of words out there that want to tell us what this year has been about and they want to tell us what is coming in the next year. There's a lot of prophetic words. And, And the world has its own words And because of that, there's a lot of confusion out there about what is real, what is God saying, what is he not saying. And and part of the problem for us as a church, I've seen this, and and I've seen some people who are kind of disillusioned right now, and they're feeling kind of shaky right now, uh, because there's some some confusion about the word, word. In the Bible, and and, and listen, if you're a visitor here today, I want you to know we are a Bible-believing church. That means we believe the Bible is true. And not just true the way a phone book is true, but a way that, true in a way that is practical. And, and when we open the Scripture every morning, we expect it to touch us. Because we're a Bible-believing church. And so, and so it, we, that means that we don't only believe it's true, we believe it's actually the authority for faith and practice. It's not our ideas, it, it's what the Scripture says that is the authority. And so when you come to there's some confusion because in the Bible, the word, word... Gets used in three different ways, at least. Actually, there's multiple ways, but three very important ways. Number one, when the Bible talks about the Word, it's talking about the living Word, which is Jesus. The the Logos, the Word that became flesh. uh, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, So if you see it, it was made by the Word. All right, all of this creation, and that is, the word there is Jesus, the the logos, the God incarnate in human flesh. And that, a lot of times in the scriptures when it says the word, it means Jesus, the living word. But there are other times in the Bible where it says the word, and it doesn't mean the living word, it actually means the written word or scripture, So for example, uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So there he's saying, it's, the word is the message of the apostles that's been written down in scriptures. When you received that, you received it as the word of God, right? So that's the, the written word. And here's the deal. The written word, which is scripture, will always point you to the living word, which is Jesus. Okay? Always. The written word is not an end in itself. It is there to attach you in a living, real relationship with the living word. And if you're reading a passage in the Bible and it's not leading you to Jesus, you've misinterpreted it. Okay? This is the hermeneutic for reading the Bible. If you want to know what's the key to it, here's the key. This is the key, that it's all about Jesus. It's all leading you to Jesus. If there's a hard text in the Old Testament, you've got to say, how does this point me to Jesus? Because the living word is testified to by the written word. Now, there's a third way, and here's where there's some confusion right now. There's a third way the Bible uses the word word, and that is for a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or a prophetic word. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom. It's it's logos in Greek. It's the same word in Greek, okay, Um, through the spirit, and to another a word of knowledge through the same spirit. So there is this word of knowledge, word of wisdom. There's a gift, of prophecy. There's a gift of a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom that is out there. So listen to me. This is very important because this is where confusion comes in. And I feel a lot of people are very disillusioned right now because they're, they're hearing the word word in prophetic word or word of knowledge and they're giving it the same authority as the living word. And this is a problem. Because if you do this you will become disillusioned when some word doesn't happen and it will make you question the written word or the living word. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Every prophetic word or word of knowledge or word of wisdom must always line up with the written word. And that must always point you to the living word. If it doesn't, it ain't a word. This this is important, you guys. Because there's some people who are very confused on this, and they're they're giving a certain authority to a prophetic word that is reserved for the living word. And so if there's a prophetic word that comes, it's got to be in line, got to be in line. Every time, ask yourself the question, wait a second, wait a second, what does the written word say, and how does that lead me to the living word because it's all about Jesus? Now, we're all... On the same page with that, I believe today I have a word that is from the written word that will point you to the living word. So if you have your written word, pull that out right now. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 or your smartphone to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to give you the context. Very short text today that we're going to look at. 1 Peter is a very pastoral letter written to a church, the people of God, who were experiencing persecution all right, like us, they were having a tough year, but unlike us, it wasn't just one year. I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but our experience as the church in America is the exception, not the rule historically. A lot of the Church of Jesus Christ around the globe today, but throughout history, have been under persecution. Not a dark year, like they've been under a lot of persecution. We're the exception, not the rule to that. And so Peter is writing, and he's saying, here is, as the people of God, you're experiencing persecution, here's how you get through it. Here is how to have hope in the darkness. Peter is saying, here's how you should live as the people of God in a dark time. Now, this is very applicable to us today. As we come to the end of a challenging year, and as we look forward, how should we live? If this is a challenging time for you, if it's dark times, how should we live in a dark time? This couldn't be more applicable to us. Now, it's important to remember before I read the text that Peter is not saying, do these things and then you will be the people of God. That's not what he's saying, okay, uh, at all. He is saying, since you've already been made the people of God, here's how you should live. We don't, we don't have time to go back, and if you read chapter 1, he's going to talk about the cross. He's going to talk about Jesus' blood. He's going to talk about the fact that Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus is Lord. He's the Savior. He, what it's, and we're the people of God because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do, right? He's the one that won. I need a bigger amen than that because that's kind of foundational, all right? So we are saved because of what Jesus did. Okay, not what we do. So what Peter is, he's not saying, hey, do these three things and then you'll be the people of God. He's saying, listen, you're under persecution. It's going through, it's a dark time, it's a hard period. But since you're the people of God because of what Jesus did, here's how you should live. You see the difference? So I want you to, I'm going to read the text. And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit right now to speak to you what you need to hear from his word. As I read the written word and it leads us to the living word I want you to be open to the Holy Spirit to hear what he's saying to you specifically related to this. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Now just stop right there for a second. That means 2020 is going to come to an end. The end of all things. Is near. The pandemic... Is going to have an end. I know it feels like it's going on forever. It's going to have an end. Every virus is going to have an end. Every, you may have a big problem in your life. Guess what? According to this, it will have an end. The end of all things. That Listen, if you're fighting an addiction, it will have an end. Sickness, illness, problems are not permanent. There will be an end. Now, that's important to remember because sometimes when you're going through something, it feels like there's no end. That's what makes you lose hope. But there will be an end. This is where he starts. The end of all things is near, therefore, right? Since the end is near, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Right? Now, the first phrase sets the context for everything else in the passage. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, whenever you start talking about the end... People get this picture in their head of a slightly wide-eyed, deranged individual with a sign that says, the end the, like this guy. Right? And you, start, you look at that and you start kind of, don't you hear like background, like I hear background music for most of my life. I have a soundtrack for life. And, and like when I see that, it's like the, the Twilight Zone music starts playing because that's the sort of caricature That you have in movies, you don't see it a lot in real life, but sometimes you do, uh, uh, about people who talk about the end, like they're psychologically imbalanced. But Peter says this is the context for living as a Christian community in dark times. This is the context. There is an end that is coming. You need to know that, and that ought to affect how you live as a community of believers. So Paul said it this way in Acts 17 um, when he was, um, I think, you know, this was in Athens. He was speaking in the Areopagus. He said, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. In other words, there's coming in, and there's going to be a judgment. There's an end coming, there's going to be a day of reckoning, there's going to be a day of justice, every wrong is going to be made right, history is going to climax in a judgment that will decide the fate of all peoples. Now he says this more clearly in verse 5 earlier on in chapter 4, but really this is a, 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 in the entire New, this is a theme throughout the entire New Testament. And we sometimes wonder why the New Testament is so radical about much of what it addresses, and the reason is all of it is written with the knowledge that history is not going to go on forever. There's going to be an endgame. Now, a lot of Greek thinkers thought that the, all of history was cyclical. There was just a bunch of cycles, right? There was a, a Genesis, and then there was a palen right? The, the, and that's, how they, that's what they talked about. There was a beginning, and then everything would burn up, and then it would be reborn. And it would start over and over again. And a lot of Greek thinkers said history is cyclical. It's just over and over and over and over again. And, and, and the New Testament said, oh, no, 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 history's going somewhere. We're headed. We're going to a place where everything is going to be made new. There's going to be an end game. And part of the reason we have a hard time as the modern church doing community the way the early church did it is because we have substituted the myth of progress for an understanding of the end and a new heavens and a new earth. And the the, the New Testament doesn't teach the myth of progress. That's kind of our culture. Our culture has this sort of belief that somehow through better technology, through better methods, better techniques, better self-development, better science, you know, better computer know-how, we are actually getting better. We're going to lead ourselves into a utopia. The world's actually getting better. We can fix it. We can be our own saviors. And that's what the myth of progress is. The myth of progress says we can save ourselves. And most people that you meet actually believe that we can save ourselves. But scripture teaches us the myth of progress is naive at best. Yes, some things are getting better. Technology is getting better. I mean, it's progressing. We can do things now that when I was a kid, it was all science fiction. I mean, I remember as a kid watching reruns of Get Smart. You remember the, the original, not the one that came out a few years with Steve Carell. The, the original Get Smart. And you remember that? The dude would pull off his shoe and talk on the phone. And we were like, a phone without wires. That could never happen. Remember Dick Tracy? The cartoon of Dick Tracy? Dude has a watch and he can talk to people and you see a picture of him and like, oh, that'll never happen in my lifetime. What? I mean, people got watches that can do all kinds of stuff. You check your heart, you know, you know, take money out of your bank account and do all kinds of stuff. I mean, we we are progressing with that, but our progress in technology is not matched by an equal progress in morality. People aren't getting less sinful, have you noticed? People aren't getting less selfish, have you, have you noticed? I mean, that's, if anything, it appears that just the opposite is happening. And so because of that, sometimes our technological progress, while it's good, yes, it's very good, and we're getting good things, sometimes the, the progress in technology just gives us new ways to hurt each other. Like the wonderful gift of social media, which is a great progress, can also be used to hurt people. Some of the things we've learned in technology can be used to figure out new ways to hurt people. Let me give you an example. Of that uh, over the last couple of years, uh, Marlene and I have been doing a lot of cooking together uh, in the kitchen, and that's a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm like the Padawan, she's the Jedi master. She, it's amazing how much she knows about cooking, and, and I've been learning for the last couple of years, I'm, I'm the Padawan, she's the Jedi, and, and so we've been cooking together, and so for Christmas, unbeknownst to us, you know, what, we, we've always had like pretty dull knives, like we one time we did get a set, of Cuisinart knives are pretty, pretty decent from, uh, from Costco. But we've never had really sharp knives. So it's like when you're dicing up, you know, onions or something, you've got to put your whole body into it. It's a whole body. I mean, you've you got to get your foot up there and to, to cut through it, you know. And sometimes, you know, it just smashes stuff. It doesn't really cut through them. And so unbeknownst to us, you know what we both got each other for Christmas? A Wusthof knife. I bought one for her. She bought one for me. And we now nah, we got a woos. Boy, look Look out. So on Christmas Day, now after Marlene had given the lecture to the boys, these are very sharp knives, unlike anything we've ever owned, you could cut your finger off. Be careful. She told him that, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. Be careful. Christmas morning. See this on the end of my finger? <laughs> Christmas morning, we, we put out a spread. I, I did some smoking, she did some cooking, We did, not smoking, like a, smoking like a meat. Just need to be clear. Yeah, smoking like a brisket. And then we, we had all kinds of stuff. And, 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 and she's like, hey, do you want to use your new Wusthof knife to cut the uh, uh, avocados? I'm like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I got my knife. And before, see, like, when you cut through the skin of an avocado because our knives are so dull, again, it was like. Ugh. And then, you know, that's how it was. But with this Wusthof, it was just like. Whoosh. Whoosh. I started going fast. I started going faster. I was like Gordon Ramsey, only with a good attitude. I'm cutting, I'm cutting, I'm cutting, until on one occasion I missed the avocado and hit this finger right here. And it laid this bad boy open. I mean, laid it open. So immediately I said, oh, my. You know, I grabbed my finger. I ran to the sink. I didn't want Marlene to see it. I did not want her to see it because I didn't want her to say, I tried to tell you, I told all the boys. So I didn't want her to see it, so I ran to it. Now, here's the deal. Because the knife is sharper, I need to be more careful, not less careful. It is an advance in technology for our family, okay, it, and it's really fun. And you can do a lot with it. I mean, man, you, could, like, you know how you chop with the little, you go, I mean, it is awesome. I never thought I'd be so excited about a Chef's knife, but it really is awesome, but the progress with the sharper knife needs to go hand in hand with progress and my care and technique, because I'm going to give an account to my wife one day about that, right? I know it's not a perfect analogy, but here's what Peter's saying. History is moving to an end, and we're going to have to give an account, and that end will cast its shadow back over our lives, and we ought to live in the light of that to take more care. Because the end is coming. It would be like this. I I used a a cooking analogy or illustration. Let me use a sports analogy. It's football season, right? Uh, College football playoffs are coming up. Uh, You know, the NFL playoffs are coming up. And and in football, there's a thing at the end of the game called the two-minute warning. Right, when it gets down to two minutes, there's a two-minute warning, and often when a game's close, teams will go into a totally different mode of play during the two-minute warning. They, they start playing different. They start doing things. They manage the clock quicker. They don't take their time to walk up to the, the line. They get up to the line quickly, right? They might spike the ball to stop the clock. They might run out patterns so they can get out of bounds so that the clock will stop, but they want to stop the clock. They use their timeouts very carefully, very strategically, or at least they're supposed to, Right? Why? Because the game is about to end, and the fact that the end is coming affects how you play the game. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, live life as if the two-minute warning's already sounded, because it has. It has. The end of all things is near, therefore... In other words, here's how you ought to live. And this isn't just for first century Christians, it's for us today. As we conclude one year and look to another, in light of the coming end game, because you are already the people of God, do these three things. Let's walk verse by verse through the text. I'm in teacher mode today, more than preacher mode, okay? So we we need to see this because there's some important things for us to be the people of God in the middle of where we're living. Okay, so let's look at these three things. Number one. He said, here's what you do, because the end is near, pray. Pray. I find it interesting that uh, uh, Peter lists prayer first because we often see prayer as an afterthought, like something we do when we're out of options and there's nothing else to do. Well, what else can we do? Well, we can pray. Okay, has it come to that? No, we're actually going to pray now. Which reveals something of what we really believe about prayer and where our hope truly lies. Peter says, the end is near, so pray. But he doesn't just say pray. He says, prepare yourself to pray. Look at the verse, verse 7. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. First he says, be clear-minded. Some translations say sober-minded. I think both is good. The whole idea is, don't let your mind get into such a stupor or such a fog mentally that it affects if you pray or how you pray. Listen, that doesn't mean you have to know everything about everything to be clear-minded. It's not so much what you think, but where your mind is. And and lots of New Testament texts uh, talk about setting our minds on things. Colossians says, set your mind uh, on things above. Uh, Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, Philippians says, whatever is true and right and noble and pure and lovely and excellent, think on those things. It, It doesn't mean that your mind has to have everything sorted out perfectly. It's not the genius of your thinking. It's the focus of your thinking. Be clear-minded means be focused on what is true. Now let me ask you a question. What would that mean for us today? Think think with me and a- ask the Lord to speak to you for, for, for you coming right out of this text here. What would it mean for us in our world today to be clear-minded so we could pray? Maybe maybe it would mean, here's just an idea, I'm going to toss it out here for you. Maybe it would mean that no matter what is happening, whether it's a pandemic, an election, or a car bombing in Nashville, uh, that, that nothing else gets to sit on the throne of my mind other than Jesus. I'm informed, yes, be informed, please, be informed. But don't let anyone or anything else sit on the throne of your mind other than Jesus. Because he's Lord. That's what it means to be, it's part of what it means to be clear-minded. But second, he says, be self-controlled. And the word is basically the opposite of being out of control or being controlled by the problems of life. Basically what he's saying is, don't let anybody else control you. Be self-controlled. Man, what a word for us today. Because we live in a time where where people are out of control and they're letting other things control them and they're letting anger control them or fear control them or rage control them. Listen, don't let social media control you. Man, some people, I mean, they're having a good day. Things are going great. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. And then I hear a ding-ding and they look on their Facebook and it says right there, they're looking at it and then boom, I just got a text from Aiden. Isn't that funny? He knows I'm preaching right now. Son. I'm going to answer it in just a minute. Um, what was I talking about anyway? Oh, yes, yeah, so some people, you know they look at their phone, they're having a good day, it's a Facebook thing, and all of a sudden they're having a bad day. Man, who is in charge of your life? Facebook? I mean, do you really want to make social media your Lord? Oh, I mean, listen. Use it for good, and and and, but don't let it control you. Don't be controlled. It says be self-controlled, so you can pray. Don't let the news control you. Don't let the world control you. Don't give them that power over you. You know, you you are actually you have the ability to give somebody power over you. Don't do it. Be self-controlled. Why? So you can pray. Be clear minded and self control. And, and listen, I think the things that lie ahead of us for a culture in 2021 are going to require us to be more in prayer, not less. Because we need to be walking in the Spirit and full of the Spirit. And prayer is one of the ways we build our relationship with Jesus and we're transformed to be like Him. Because listen, prayer doesn't change Jesus, it changes us. So we need to do that. Since the end is near. Be self-controlled, be clear-minded so you can pray. Number two, love. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the above all virtue, he says. Above all. Love each other. And Peter's just echoing what Jesus taught him, right? One day Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're going to make it, Peter is saying, if we're going to make it through dark times as the people of God, we have to be, above all, we have to be people who love each other because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you'll allow another, forgive me, for another football analogy. There will only be three more football analogies in the sermon. No, I'm kidding. This will be the last one unless I think of another one. Um. Use the football analogy. If you're on a football team and your teammate misses a tackle, what do you do? Do you run to the crowd and go, ha, did you see? He missed a tackle. Can you believe him? No, if you're on a football team and your teammate misses a tackle, you make the tackle. Right? I mean, if you're on a team and, and, and the ball's handed off to the running back and he fumbles the ball going through the line, what do you do? Do you look at the guy and go, I'm really disappointed in you? really expected more four-star recruit out of high school you would think you could hold on to the ball right is that what you do no what do you do you cover it if your teammate fumbles the ball you dive on the ball why because you love the team and you love your brother and you want to keep the ball so you can score you cover it. Paul is saying, not Paul, Peter is saying, here's how you do community. Above all else, love each other. Be devoted to the team. Cover each other. Man, if they make a mistake, don't expose them. My goodness. I see this so much. So often people are just so into these. i got to expose this. They made a, If they mispronounce a word, i got to correct them. Because we're all about exposing each other instead of being on the same team. Did we forget we're on the same team? In the church of Jesus Christ? Man, if the ball gets shot, what do you do? You dive on the ball. I mean, and and it says, he says here, love one another deeply. I did some work on that word, just kind of see how it was used, you know, because the way you learn about what a word means is to see who it, what other words it hangs out with. And the word deeply there, it, it can also mean, and in fact, most often it doesn't mean deep as in like deep waters, it means deep as in stretched or extended, So, for example, in the medieval period, they had these, this is a terrible picture, but sorry. um, They they had these torture racks that would stretch people. Same word. So when it says love each other deeply, it means let your love be stretched. The the point is that our love for one another gets stretched by exercise. It, It might not be comfortable being stretched. Uh, but we're to love each other in a way that we will stretch our love. We will extend our love to the need that is there to cover. You might say, well, man, that doesn't feel good to love like that. No, it, he didn't say anything about feeling good. <laughs> he said, above all, love each other deeply. Stretch in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the reason we have to cover a multitude of sins is because we're all imperfect. Can we just, I know, you know, I know we're in church and everything, but can we just be super honest for a second here? There is nobody in this room who hasn't fumbled the ball at some time in their life. Not one. Jesus was the only one who never fumbled the ball. Okay, every single... One of us have hunger the ball, and we need people on our this is why we're not on our own. We're on a team, we're part of a body so that we can cover each other. And we're called on to cover each other. We all need someone to cover us. And, and Peter, he, he gives a specific example. Look at verse 9. He says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which says something to attitude there, right? He didn't, he could have it would have been nice if he just said, look, offer hospitality. No, 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 he says do it with a good attitude. As someone said, hospitality is make, trying to make someone feel at home, even if you wish they were. <laughs> hmm. Do it without grumbling. In other words, watch your attitude. Wow, wow, there's so much grumbling in the world today. There's a lot of bad attitudes, and I've got to be honest with you, I've had a bad attitude some this year, a couple times, yesterday. (laughs) You know, and so have you. Okay, come on. You've grumbled about pandemic rules. (laughs) You've grumbled about the government, society, church people, traffic. Although, actually, I was kind of happy to see some Christmas traffic, to be honest with you. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says, look, the end is near. It's coming soon. So love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Change your attitude. Why? Because you're about to stand before Almighty God. That's coming. So what do you do? Let it affect you how you live now. So think with me for a minute. Think for a second. What would that look like? What would that look like for us as a church? What, what kind of witness to the world would we be if we did this? If we loved each other, we stretched to cover one another. Hey, listen, don't look back at this year. Look, look for, dream with me. Dream with me for a second. What would it look like if New Life, if we did this for each other throughout 2021? What if we made it a goal? Man, I want, we want to outlove each other. I'm going to stretch. To you, and you're going to stretch to me, and we're going to cover each other, and we're going to love each other. What would what would that look like? Do you think it might be attractive to the world to see a community doing that for each other? I don't know how 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 is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? Because I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you right now about how you can, above all, love deeply, and you can offer hospitality. So listen to what He's saying. Listen to me, but listen to the Holy Spirit. And maybe as, even as I'm concluding in the next couple of minutes, just write down what he, he might be saying to you. Peter says, Here's what we do. The end is near. We're in the two minute warning. Number one, we got to pray. Be clear minded, self controlled, so we can pray. Number two, we're going to love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. And number three, serve. This is not eat, pray, love. This is pray, love, serve. There's a difference. Since the end is near, verse 10, look at this. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Now let me unpack that very briefly and then we'll be done. He doesn't say if you have a gift, you should use it. But use whatever gift you have. You see the difference? Let me unpack that a little bit. That means number one. You have a gift. If, if I had the time, and, and I could do this to every single person in the room, I would look you in the eyes, each individual person, and say, you have a gift. And you have, if I could do it with everybody watching on live stream, and if I could look at every single person in the eye, I would say, you have a gift. God doesn't have ungifted children. You would say, I, I don't feel very gifted. Well, that is a lie from you know who. You are gifted. God has gifted you with something. You have a gift. You're in the gifted program. God has given you a gift. God doesn't have any ungifted children. So number one, you have a gift. Number two, and please hear me, we need your gift. If I could say this to every single person, I would look every single person in the eye and say, we need your gift. Yes, you have a gift, but we need your gift. New Life Church needs your gift. We're in the two-minute warning. The end is near. We need you guys. I hope you hear that from a pastor's heart crying out to say, I know God has put something special in you. He's put a gift in you, and he's put you at New Life for a reason, to use your gift, and we need it. I need you. you know what? As much as you hate to admit this, you need me. That's kind of scary, I know. But you get the point. number of years ago, if you'll, okay, this is one more sports analogy. I forgot about this one. Um, It's not football, though. Um, uh, Years ago, back in the glory days, uh, New Life Church had a very good church softball team. I mean, some of you guys are here, played on the team. We were good. In the 80s, in the 90s, we got old in the 2000s. But before then, we were really good. Really good softball team. Went to the state championship. I know some of you are thinking, there's a state championship for church softball? Yes, there is, and we went there. Okay, we won our league down at Watkins many, many years. And there was a little brief period there at the end of the 90s where I had to—I was the one putting the team together. I wasn't really coaching I was putting the team together, putting the lineup together and that kind of thing. And, you know, it was one of those things where I was trying to get everybody to play and everything. And so there were a few games where I, did, I didn't play myself. And one game we lost, um, which did I mention we were very good? We were very good. We didn't, we didn't lose a lot. But one game we lost, and we're talking after the game. And I'll never forget, because I hadn't played the game. I was just kind of doing the, you know, trying to be the coach I'll never forget this, and and they probably don't remember this, but Todd Johnson and Todd Brizendine came up to me and they said, Tim, we need your bat. We need your bat in the lineup. Now, they didn't say they needed my glove, which I'm a little hurt by. (laughs) It's okay, this is 25 years ago, I forgive you. Um, But they said, we need your bat. In other words, you, you got a gift. We need you in the lineup. We need you in the game. If we're gonna make a run at winning the championship, we need you in the lineup. Now you know what? That spoke a lot to me. Yeah, okay. There's a gift, and I need to put it. My team needs it. Listen, this is me saying to you, here we are, we're ending a year. I need your bat in the game. I need you in the lineup. Because you've got a gift. You have a gift. And our team needs it. We need it. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what your gift is? Are you using it? Now notice here, he says, he says use whatever gift you've received, not so that you build a platform for yourself, but in order to serve others. There's an incoming, there's a two-minute warning because of that. Since we are the people of God, here's what we do. We pray. We love we serve each other and why do we do all of that here's why it's the last verse verse 11 so that in other words all that came before is there so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever amen it's for God's glory it's so the name of Jesus will be exalted and lifted up because it's all for him it's all about him. It's not about us. And isn't this good news? Isn't this so freeing to know our very lives, New Life Church, uh, your family, none of it is about us. It's all for him, for his glory. So we're going to come together and we're going to do that. We're going we're to pray. We're going to love. We're going to serve because the end is near.